This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 32 for April 2013. Your hosts, as usual, are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin, that's me. Our topic for this episode is 42, the Jackie Robinson biopic. Directed by Brian Helgeland and starring Chadwick Boseman and Harrison Ford. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet seen the film, are unaware of the biography of Jackie Robinson, or have never attended a Major League Baseball game on Jackie Robinson Day, then go take care of that first and come back, or don't say we didn't warn you. So, Todd... Normally we ask at this point, why are we looking at this from a film geek radio perspective? But we had made some intentional changes about what we're looking at. So do you want to just be transparent about that and key the audience into why we're doing this film? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that we're retooling or revamping, but maybe, maybe perhaps getting back to certainly when, when we first started this podcast 32 episodes ago, one of the ideas that we had about The Thin Place was that we would have this sort of alternating format going between uh, new releases and old-slash-classic releases, change things up a bit, and, and give us a broader range. And for the first 32 episodes, I think we've been, we, we have been rather selective about our new releases. And, and as you point out, it's kind of saying, hey, this, why are we talking about this film? And we had this conversation about, well, isn't there something to be said about thinking Christianly um, about the film world around us? You know, shouldn't we be able to do that with any film? And so kind of as a, maybe an experiment in modeling this sort of behavior, the, the thought came of, well, just whatever new release happens to be out that we've seen recently, you know, when we need the podcast, we'll do that. Ken has a, a, an exercise he does with his some of his classes where he randomly assigns texts and critical perspectives to students that they have to write papers on. And kind of in that spirit of, well, it will work. We in order to demonstrate that any critical perspective can reveal things about any text. Um, and so this is kind of our first foray into just simply taking what was there. And as we were getting ready to record, 42 was just released last week. So what does it mean to think Christianly about Jackie Robinson or about 42? Mm -hmm. One of the things that won't be new to those who know me is that I I think most of us would agree that thinking Christianly means something other than simply identifying Christian content or what I call identity criticism. Identity criticism would be the formulation of uh, the critical equivalent of identity politics, where if you belong in that group, then your politics are whatever that groups are. 
And if a candidate or an issue helps your group, then you're for it or you're against it. Um, a kind of groupthink mentality that I think we, we want to try to eschew and say, yes, it's possible of, of uh, liking something, even if perhaps from an identity politics way, it's not overtly pro-Christian. It's possible of disliking or criticizing something, even if it is pro-Christian in, in that particular way. And so uh, there certainly is a little bit of overt Christian content in 42. Uh, Branch Rickey, the owner, is identified as a Methodist, and uh, mm-hmm. many of his actions uh, he claims are motivated by or informed by his Christian faith. And he quotes scripture regularly throughout the film. And, you know, so part of my challenge then as a Christian critic would be, okay, Ken, you didn't particularly like this movie that much. Like, I think, is is a complicated or a complex word. You didn't esteem the movie that much. So what is it about it that, you know, that you can think about as a Christian other than just whether or not it has Christian content? What were your overall assessments of the film, Todd? I thought it was a fairly serviceable biopic. Um, I, I I tend to think in it that movies based on historical events have some built-in dramatic problems that make it very hard for a based on actual events type movie to to really excel in a kind of dramatic artistic way. Um, we've been talking about films inspired by events and adaptations of things the last several episodes. Um, and I think that it really comes out here. I mean, when the season starts and Jackie Robinson is facing all sorts of racial um, resistance, it's it, it was hard for me to feel a lot of drama because I know the end of the story. This, the, you know, this is a story that has been told many, many, many times in different media, in different ways. Um, I think if you are in any way, shape, or form a, a fan of American baseball, if you don't know this story, that's on you. It's not on the culture. Um, and so that, going into it, I thought it was going to, it was going to have a, a long road to hoe. I thought there were some things it did very well. I mean, it, it's a beautiful looking picture. Visual kind of historical detail is very engaging. The shots of Jackie Robinson in the batter's box with the ball coming in at his head at 90 miles an hour are very effective. And, you know, and I, I like the people that are there, but as I said, it, it didn't, I didn't find it very engaging dramatically. And, I thought that the portrayal of Jackie Robinson was just a little too perfect. It was well done. I mean, I, I don't think anyone's going to be disappointed or unengaged if they go to the film. Right. I I would agree with that. I mean, I think that there was something... It's impossible to talk about a movie like 42 without talking about race, and I certainly don't feel qualified to talk about racism and the you know experience of racism. There was something to me that seemed very calculated about the film in a very self-aware or self-conscious way. It's almost as though it seemed to me like the film had to say, okay, these are all the pitfalls in talking about race in 2013. You're going to get white pushback of people saying, not every white person was a racist. 
So let's include a scene where a guy walks up to Jackie and Jackie feels threatened and he says, I'm pulling for you. Right. You know, where people will say racism is a disease, you know, and we will see uh, a kid who is naive influenced by his dad. And it seemed fairly simple to draw a straight line at any one particular scene that you were watching and the broader point that they were trying to make. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that just means that it's accessible. But that sort of direct and immediate intellectual or interpretive payoff seems to me to be a very simplistic form of writing that I find troublesome and that ultimately strikes me false because life isn't like that. I'm not always aware in each incident that happens in life what the broader point is and so it doesn't need to be cinema verite where we cover 40 years. Obviously art is selective right? and yet there's an aura of selectivity about these scenes and and economy of storytelling that prevents me from ever being involved in the story or getting wrapped up in the story because that structure, if I'll use the sports analogy, felt more to me like watching a greatest hits or a highlight reel mm -hmm. on Sports Center than watching an actual game and games have ebbs and flow and drama and mounting or whatever. And it just seemed like 42 had okay, now here's this iconic moment, now here's this iconic moment, and here's this iconic moment. In some ways, hearing you talk about it that way, it reminds me a bit of some of the criticism, and you know, this is a wildly different genre of picture, but um, the later Harry Potter films, um, when they were coming out, that was essentially the same kind of criticism, which was it's, it's not so much a story as it is for people who know the books, we're going to hit, here's high point A, here's high point B, here's high point C. We don't really need much connective tissue. And so for the people who know the story, there are some little touchstones that are going to be there. It certainly gives you the overview, but there it, it does lack that, you know, how do you get from point A to point B? I had made a joke on Facebook that 42 struck me sometimes as a kind of script where someone had written this, the Jackie Robinson story and then someone had summarized it or put it in spark notes and then someone else had filmed the spark notes instead of actually, actually the story or, or who wrote a different script based just on the spark notes and not on knowing the whole story. And so there is a kind of selectivity uh, that goes into shaping the material, but maybe another analogy to the Harry Potter thing is if you've got so much material that you can't cover everything, then you have to be selective in your focus in order to tell a story that gives emphasis. Or if you're not real confident, I, I see this in my students when I assign them to do summaries and the article's too long for the summary that they have to do in, they try to pack as much in as possible so that they don't get a low grade because they think a low grade means I don't want to leave anything really important out, so I better do my best to put everything in. And I'll say, well, you've got a lot of stuff in, but part of what a really good summary is is not just including the important part, but making me understand in the overall context of the summary or the argument 
why it's important and why it's meaningful. Right. A, a lot of that has to do with script. Maybe to tie that back to 42, what I see is generic versus particular. That there is a kind of dramatic genericness about the situations. A black man being surrounded by a mob of a potential mob of angry white people. Well, there's something that's very generic about that, that's very dramatic about that. But Jackie Robinson is a very particular manifestation of this generic experience. Mm -hmm. And I get a lot of the generic experiences of, okay, black people dealt with racism at that particular time. But I surprisingly don't get as much of the drama of Jackie Robinson is this very particular black man dealing with it at this very particular time. Other than the script constantly tells us that he is that. Right. And he is that. Uh, for instance, I never, I mean, there's one conversation between the black writer and Jackie Robinson, but I never get much sense of any differentiation between Jackie Robinson and any other black person, the other black ball players, the other black people, in any other way other than, oh, we all as black people accept him as a representative of us and a manifestation of us. And that seems to me to be a kind of... Well, we even get the one scene where Branch Rickey is going through the whole list of ball players from the Negro Leagues. Because, you know, he's got it in his head. He wants to bring a black player into the major leagues. Right. So it's like, okay, who are we going to, who's going to be the first one? But again, you know, and, and we get the list and they say, well, we can't pick this guy for this reason, this guy for this other reason. Um, oh, here's Jackie Robinson. He's special. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, they're telling us he's special. Right. We don't ever see him really, you know, engaging or acting in a way other than being special. And, you know, and to be fair, that's going to, that would have taken a lot of time. Well, okay. Yeah. But if but, you follow through with that scene, yeah. Wright Harrison for Branch Rickey says, you can't fight back. Uh, and Jack Robinson says something like, you want a man who's too scared to fight, who's too weak to fight back. And Harrison Ford says, no, I want someone who is strong enough to not fight back. Right. So that's very iconic and expository. But even that dialogue presupposes that there are some people that I could pick, that would be the wrong person right. because they're not strong enough to not fight back. And I'm not sure how much of them and that I see in the film. It just seems right. to me there is, a, there is a historical foreknowledge of just about everyone in the film that I think harkens back to your thing about historical yeah. biopics or historical where everyone seems to know how this is going to end end up and what Jackie Robinson signifies. And that means, in a sense, that no one can ever really say, not just, I admire you for doing something I couldn't, but I disdain you for doing something I wouldn't, or I'm not sure that you're doing the right thing, or how would I handle this in, in a particular way. There's, there's not a lot of complexity. And... I get that racism is not a complex thing. It's not, I'm not talking about moral complexity. I'm talking about there's not a lot of tactical plot complexity right. of actually dealing with this. There's, there's never, there never seems to be any scene in the movie 
in which what the right thing to do is not fairly evident to everyone involved immediately, mm-hmm. and the consequences of doing it or not doing it are spelled out to underscore to the people involved and to us, the audience, that that was the right thing or the wrong thing, and here's why. And you know, to dig into that a little bit, um, you know, the one place where it might be, you know, there might be some complexity, but maybe not, is you know the the scene. Um, it's after the the Philadelphia manager has badgered um, Jackie throughout an entire game, and and we get that that scene. Um, but then the next time when the Dodgers are going through Philadelphia, um, and Basically, Jackie is asked to go take a, a photograph with the Philadelphia manager. He does quite, I mean, the, there is a certain amount of questioning. And how would you see that scene in terms of what you were, in terms of complexity? Where Jackie says, fine, I'll, I'll take the picture, but it has to be out in public. Um, that whole sequence. Well, I, I guess there is... You can look at that scene and say... There's been a power reversal. The manager has been told mm-hmm. to do this, and so Jackie has the power to show him up or make him, you know, go along with that or just say, I'm going to let you twist in the wind. And Jackie makes somewhat of a compromise, which is, I'm going to, yes, I'll agree to take the picture, but only if we do it on the field where everyone can see it, not in the hallway. Um, but that seems to me to be his his motivations or decisions seem to be tactical ones in the sense of, okay, I know what I should do, and I'm not struggling against, I'm not sure that I want to do this. The dilemma is in the sense of, I don't know if he, there's things that just, I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. know if he's sincere. I don't know what will have the best effect or, or something like that. And so I think through and select an option that's going to be most consistent with our game plan and our strategy, but not necessarily the most consistent with, it, it feels like there's, some perhaps imprecision there about what's the right thing to do or why that's the right thing. But it's very mushy and it's very, it's not really articulated because in fact, I, as a viewer of that scene in 2013, part of what makes it pregnant with meaning is because in a longitudinal perspective, I've seen lots of examples of racists forced to take photo ops who doesn't who don't mean anything. Right. And I'm questioning not Jackie, but the overall strategy of is that really the most effective way to win over racists? Or sometimes do you need to reveal them? Mm-hmm. Sometimes do they just need to be powered down or something like that? And so you know, there's a there's a whole level of meta discussion even after he does it of whether or not it's the right thing or the most effective thing. But the movie has a very plateau, very episodic structure that we rarely see those sorts of decisions tied to consequentially 
to any kind of uh, larger change in in a way that makes you wonder what works, what doesn't. Can any one person work, or you know whether or not that's great? It's a it's a photo op, and it looks nice, but what exactly has been and been tell, really and, changed? And tellingly, we never really see the Philadelphia manager again. Right. I mean, you know, so you know, did it have an effect on him? Did it? Lead him to re- rethink his positions. Well, doesn't um, it say in the movie's postscript in the credits that he never managed again, that he was fired? And Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So, and, and maybe there's an insinuation of that. that or maybe he got sent to Pittsburgh. That the reason he never managed again or something like that was that divine retribution because he was not capable of dealing with black players and, right. the, you know, that's going to be the new reality, which in and of itself is a sort of complex statement about race and race relationships which okay maybe that makes you feel good like oh he got his he never managed again but in my experience that tends to harden people's racism and then it manifests itself in other ways rather than it just being this very abusive metaphor a couple times before but it's a very linear movie right and the experience of race relationships or prejudice or social interaction is a very complex issue that I, I think seldom moves forward in a very linear way um, and all the time has consequences and pushback and, and different things. And in a ham-fisted segue. Ham-fist. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about showers. Showers. And taking showers. Uh, at the screening that I saw, and which I saw as well, there was a scene fairly late in the movie after Jackie has mostly been accepted by the the team where he's waiting in the locker room for everyone to finish showering. And one of the players whose name I forget. Ralph Bronca. Yes. Ralph Bronca says, why do you always wait for everyone to finish showering before you take your shower? And we'll talk to you. Take it from there and in terms of summary. Jackie basically says, I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. And then we get this kind of humorous interchange where Bronca, you know, is like, oh, well, come take a shower with me. And it then turns into this very uncomfortable. Or with us. With us and with me. And it turns into this very uncomfortable, like, oh, no, wait, I didn't mean it that way. Of course, you know. We don't want to be, think in any way, shape, or form that this is any sort of homosexual. Come on. And they go back and forth in a very uncomfortable, humorous way. And, and certainly everyone in the theater was laughing. Right. Um, it was a kind of a, a moment of comic relief. Um, and, and then, you know, basically the next scene we see is Jackie stepping into the shower. Right. And one of the, one of the players getting off and, and leaving, leaving uh, because he was not comfortable. Yeah, so in many ways, this scene was the most interesting to me, but also the most frustrating, particularly given the audience's reaction, because I think it was the one place where the film was not allowing itself to stay safely in the past. Mm -hmm. There is a work going on there, and perhaps I'm applying it as a as a reader, uh, that's inviting you through that scene and the uncomfortableness that the black person and the white person 
equally feel about the prospect of the gay person that in an odd sort of way both undercuts and bolsters what the movie is about in the sense of like okay it's horrible that all of this stuff is happening to the black people and the black people are treated the black player is treated unequally but the black person and the black player is at least acknowledged right in the movie as being existing the gay person or the gay player is so beyond acceptance at this particular time that he's not even acknowledged in, in that particular way and i would argue that based on the audience's laughter that uh, you know that continues on until today and that's the one person where place where i felt like the film could have been insightful in a cultural work in a moral mm -hmm. sort of way rather than just inviting us all to pat ourselves on the back culturally and say hey look how far we've come to say prejudice fear racism they're not just things in the past and they're not just things that are fought once they're things that are fought over and over again and sometimes in an uncomfortable way part of the way that one group makes progress is by agreeing to participate in the marginalization of, of other groups or to say, I can't really deal with that right now. I can't really right. be, you know, let that be my problem. I, I, it's not like I wanted Jackie to instruct Ralph Bronca on the evils of homophobia right. and, and to sort of say in a very forward-looking way of saying, well, you know, you, you can accept me as uh, a human being, but you can't accept that, what if I was gay, you know, or whatnot. So obviously I don't expect Jackie to do that. But part of the reason I don't accept, expect Jackie to do that is because Jackie Robinson was a product of his time. Right. And, you know, that opens the door to the whole lot. A lot of the white people were the products of their time in ways that are no longer tolerable. But, but it also is a, a place where the film, I think, says to me, not just, I don't int think intentionally does it, but could have done it, says, okay, rather than just applaud ourselves for how much better and more egalitarian than that we are today than they were back then, in a large part because of the brave work of people like Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey right. and Ralph Branca, it never invites us to say, well, where are these issues still going on today? And isn't part of honoring the legacy and the work of Jackie Robinson and the Branch Rickies not just applauding at them and their accomplishments, but go thou and do likewise, yes. you know? And, and in some ways, I think that the film just keeps everything so buttonholed in the past with the period garb and the period detail at, down to the point where it feels more a piece with of Lincoln than it does with some contemporary, you know, film or contemporary portrayal of racism, because it just seems to go out of its way to say, with the gloves and the small gloves and the way that baseball is changing and saying, yes, this existed, but this was a different time and a different world, you know, right, and everything and that. You know, we're dealing with this one thing, but everything it was back then. Mm -hmm. 
and nothing, therefore, is part of today. Right. And and there's a part of me that wants to say, okay, the thing that jars about that shower scene is that's the one place where I, I don't think the movie intended that. Right. But where I, as a viewer, were like, well, I wonder how a gay person would feel like looking at that. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, so the fact that that the movie itself doesn't seem to be aware of of its self-enclosedness and the ways in which it's playing it safe, which I don't know that I can totally articulate. I feel like I'm, I'm fumbling it, but, but whatever. I think part of it is, for me anyways, what made that scene kind of stand out in a not good way was that in com- we can compare it to a scene earlier in the film that is also kind of dealing with an issue that was you know very real to Jackie Robinson's life, but then also does have something to say about today. And that is when um, Jackie's first child is born and he's standing in the maternity ward and it's just him and well, the babies in the maternity ward. Um, and he, he gives this lovely speech and basically saying, you know, I never knew my father. Um, he was never around. I, that's not going to happen for you. I'm mm-hmm. going to be there. Um, and, you know, and, and there is this real, this, this sense of, you know, that was very real and true to Jackie Robinson's life. Mm-hmm. But then it, it also does touch on a very real issue today, um, especially, you know, in African American community. Um, but I think more so, I think more and more so, um, in, um, the white community as well of, you know, kids without fathers. Right. And, you know, and, and kind of saying here is a man, you know, not only is he tackling all of this, this racial, uh, oppression in his baseball life, but he's doing something important in his personal life um, that touches. And, and it, it was good. I mean, it was a good scene. I, it, it didn't feel like it was undercutting the film in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Whereas the shower scene, you know, yes, it was kind of, you know, we played, it got played for humor, but it seemed to be undercutting the, the overall arc of what this film is about. Well, the maternity ward scene, I, I found very interesting. It frustrated me a little bit for the same reasons that you mentioned, which is it does touch on this larger issue of absent fathers mm-hmm. and hints at or alludes in a very safe way to the fact that that's not exclusive to the black community, but a, a particular experience that is shared by many black men. Right. The thing that bothered me about that scene that I think is emblematic of the movie is that it portrays the difference of Jackie Robinson as being a strictly personal decision. I am going to resolve that you are going to have a father. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, you will. And therefore, I can overcome this based on personal decisions and my own personal character. When the reality of the fact is, that it was a little bit easier for Jackie Robinson to do that because he had a skill that was high enough in demand that he could bring up his son, sure. that he could feed his son, that he could clothe his son, that he could be available uh, for his son. And I'm not going to say that anyone 
can't be available for them or is forced to abandon their kids. But it sort of presents a larger issue that is tied into the experience of race and simply attribute it to the personal goodness or the personal character of the individual person involved. There's a kind of institutional, structural, cultural racism that affects people, black and white, on a day-to-day level in, I was going to say subtle, that example is not a particularly (laughs) subtle one, uh, but in subtle ways that the maternity ward scene ends up hurting in a particular way because it, it allows racism to solely and exclusively be personal feelings of racial animosity. And another place where that, that sort of comes up is in the, you know, the famous Pee Wee Reese photograph, right? Where the kid is watching his hero, Pee Wee Reese with his dad uh, and his dad is screaming racial epitaphs at Jackie Robinson, and the kid participates, and then Pee Wee Reese puts his arm around Jackie Robinson, and the kid is like, oh, God, I don't know what to do anymore. And so, okay, progress has been made. A kid has been taught not to have personal feelings of racism. But that's just one more example where why is it that so many people from Kentucky. So if it's like, well, and Cincinnati is a particularly bad place where there's a lot of races. Well, why is Cincinnati a worse place? You know, why is the proximity right. to Kentucky? Why is racism so much stronger in some places than, uh, other. than others? If it's just this sort of personal and, thing that I've never, you know, been experienced. And part of, I mean, you know, in thinking about the film, you know, these kind of, the, the way that it seems what I hear you saying is that it, it's focused more on this individual thing rather than the systematic problems. And Well, it's okay for me that it's focused more on that, but I think it's focused on racism on an individual level to the near exclusion right. of racism on a structural level. And, and I'm wondering if some of this comes back to that word I used earlier, hagiography. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, we use the word hagiography as a fancy way of talking about saints, but maybe what we're talking about here is mythologizing. And it's not that it's telling the mythological story of the Jackie Robinson story of how we fight racism, but it's the American myth of the individual who does, who is responsible for all change. Um, you know, it goes, you know, it's the Old West. It's the, the, the lone stranger comes into town that's having a problem and the lone stranger with his six gun is going to beat the bad guy. And so here we have Jackie Robinson, the lone gunfighter coming into town and he's defeating racism all by himself with his bat and his glove. Um, and I, I just, I wonder if it, this isn't kind of that sort of mythological telling of the story that is focused on the, the lone hero who comes in and solves a problem. Maybe, but I don't think so, because I think anytime you're dealing with race, and particularly with the Jackie Robinson story, one of the one of the innate problems that I think Helgeland would have in making the script is that he does show Jackie 
is dependent upon the help of others. Mm -hmm. Jackie couldn't win the World Series if the eight other people were bums. And obviously, Jackie couldn't have done it without Branch Rickey and Branch Rickey being motivated. Mm -hmm. Now, I think Helglund wants to wants to walk a very fine line because he wants to acknowledge that, that there's systematic change and that's important, but he doesn't want to have one more of that pushback we get from the help of like, okay, white people solve racism or, but the reality of the fact is, is when you are disempowered or unempowered, you need help from outside as well as from well, I mean, I guess, as well as from within I, I guess even even with that in in, in, the, in the hero kind of mythology the heroes always have help I mean there, there are helper figures along the way but it's hard for me to think of Branch Rickey as being a helper as of being, being instead of, of being the, the innate, well I mean he's the yeah the initiator yeah I, I mean I think I think really in in some ways what we're getting at and I'm going to undercut myself here but <laughs> But this is good. This is why we're talking about Christian criticism and about liberal versus conservative. It's a question of, from a political or a social or a cultural ideology, how do we affect change? Mm-hmm. And I think that there is one model which you'll see Christians espousing in the master plan of evangelism, which says, you know, Jesus didn't come in and work through structures. He didn't right. take over the church and implement the church and reform the church. He got 12 disciples, and he invested himself in their life, and they told two friends, and those, you know, right. uh, you know, he, he had 12 disciples, and within them he had three, and then Peter went on to have John, Mark, and, you know, whatever people, and through those influences, they told two friends, and so on, and through the power of compound interest, you can affect a lot more people than you can through, you know, an institution. The American and particular secular, uh, I want to say liberal, but I'm afraid all my liberal friends will misunderstand me and all my conservative friends will pounce on me, but the American secular sort of myth is much more of an activist myth that sort of says people are inherently good, but they only become evil through institutions, you know, that that post-Emersonian Thoreau version. Right. And so, therefore, if we want to affect change, we need to reform institutions. We need to reform baseball. Right. You know, and Branch Rickey says in his speech of why are we doing this? It's because I realized I couldn't love baseball because there was something wrong with baseball. And, and I had to save baseball or change it. And thank you because you've made baseball something that I could love again. And yet, I, I think that so there is an awareness because of, of – the history and the reality that the important part of what Jackie Robinson did is not, and Branch Rickey did, is not just so much some kid who went to the ballpark and saw him and didn't have personal feelings of racism, although that's good, and I don't want to undercount that, but they also opened the gate to allow baseball to become integrated so that other people could follow in my footsteps uh, and do it too and have a structural impact on society and on culture by being providers, by being equal, by having jobs, by having money, by being empowered, you know, in, in a particular way. 
And I think that the film wants to portray this hagiography of it's exceptional. And so he has to be this exceptional person who had all these exceptional circumstances. But I keep going back to that threshold mentality or that mountain climbing mentality of once I've done this, it never has to be done anymore. And the reality is the next person who came in would have experienced many of those same things. And they're important not just because Jackie, not particularly because Jackie Robinson did them, but because Jackie Robinson did them first. And by doing them first, he didn't solve them. No. He just allowed other people to experience them, you know. The thing that keeps popping into my head as a lifelong Cleveland Indians fan is Larry Doby. Okay. Who was the first American League, uh, first African American to play in the American leagues. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, and I keep thinking, you know, the way that 42 plays out is, you know, okay, then the next year, um, Roy Campanella and I forget who the, the other person was. Yeah. Joined Jackie. So his second season, there, there were, Jackie Robinson was not alone, mm-hmm. at least. Well, you know, alone in that sense of, well, there was more than one African American, therefore they must be friends. Um, but, you know, he wasn't alone in feeling those pressures. Whereas you still had, you know, Larry Doby in the American League, who was having to go to all those cities for the first time to be the first African American major league ball player in mm-hmm. those different cities. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, it's it helps. It was great. I mean, Jackie Robinson's story is fantastic. Right. Um, but part of what the film does by by that sort of you know kind of video gaming, I beat level one, now I have to beat level two, and it, yeah, I never have to play level one again. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, it really kind of robs the the experience? You know, it's no longer this thing, this huge struggle or a constant struggle. Um, it kind of recasts it as a different kind of struggle that maybe is more understandable. Right. Well, yes. And so I'm, I, I keep trying to equate this back to Christian criticism. Right. Total tangent alert. There, you mentioned the Cleveland Indians. While I'm mentioning the the, the shower scene there, I. A purpose of absolutely nothing. I'm one of those people that's appalled that 50 years after Jackie Robinson, we've still got cheap, cheap Wahoo, Wahoo, or whatever it is, and apparently it's okay to have these. Yeah, but but, oh, yeah. but, but to, to go back to the you know that Christian criticism, I put down on my comment card, my media comment card. I actually I don't think I did, but I was tempted to. You would like to look, go back and I'd like to go back <laughs> right in, in the biography of me. We will say that I did. I said my initial reaction about 42 was it's the best feel-good movie about racism since The Help. Yes. And then I have to think about, other than being a clever line, what do I mean about feel-good movies about racism? And part of it is that it's that that self-contained in the past. Part of it is that video game level of, okay, now that that hurdle has been cleared – everything is solved or everything is better or, you know, progress is always incrementally forward. There's a part of me that says as a viewer circa 2013, that's not true. Yeah. And there's a part of me as a Christian viewer that wants to say, however, and noble are the actions and truthful, the people and the intentions behind it. It's hard for me to get behind something in a serious way where I say, Okay, this may be accurate in the sense that it really happened, 
but we throw around that word in the podcast a lot about the difference between accurate and true. Yeah. You know, are there any historical accuracies or is there any place where I can go back and say that wasn't said or that wasn't? I don't know. But in terms of capturing the truth of racism, and again, I'm a white person, so I don't know, it, it didn't strike me as being very true. Now, maybe it doesn't have to be to be great art. Maybe, uh, but I think that difference between truth and feeling good mm-hmm. is one of the ways that we distinguish between art and entertainment. And if someone wants to say of 42, I was very entertained by the film, I found it a very entertaining film, then I got no problem with that. Yeah. If someone wants to make claims of great art for it, I've got a little bit of problems with that. And if someone wants to say they were very entertained by something that wasn't true, particularly when you're dealing with historical events, then I begin to look a little bit more closely and with a little bit more scrutiny and say, well, okay, why is it that we are entertained or want our history to be entertaining uh, and care more about whether or not our history is is entertaining? Is it not because in some way, even being about racism, it strokes us. It strokes us as white viewers. It strokes us as modern viewers. And is designed to make us say, whatever is really bad about racism or about anything else, it was really bad. But fortunately, we had Jackie Robinson, and so we don't have to think about it anymore. And we don't have to think about ourselves anymore. And we don't have to think about our reaction to the story of racism anymore and our complicity to it anymore because we can all, we can all be one in cheering Jackie Robinson as long as it puts it in the, as you said before, it puts it in the past. And it reminds me of, you know, my students who come to me and they'll write papers about whatever. But, you know, especially my female students who will be looking at things, you know, like patriarchy in society or something. And whenever they say things like way back when, you know, back, you know, in my mother's or my grandmother's day, things used to be this way. And then I ask them, is it any really any different today? And then they get this un- very uncomfortable look on their face because whatever poem or story we're looking at really does start poking them a little bit about, yeah, this is the way things still are. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things that this this film doesn't really do. Mm-hmm. A lot of films don't do that. Right. Right. That's you know, true. So, I mean, Argo did not do that. I mean, Argo I thought was very entertaining in a yeah. Hollywood movie kind of way, but I had a lot of the same reservations about it. So I, it, you know, it's not as though because this movie is about race or racism, there's a higher threshold that it has to be judged by yeah. podcast. Or, or yeah, the question like, or is something that's calling itself history. So is that held to a higher standard? Right. And that's something we can continue to explore in, in other particular ways. But but I just want to say, you know, there's a part of me listening to us that says 42 didn't do that. Well, how many films do? Right. You know, even films that, that are greatly esteemed by a lot of people, most films are judged as entertainment. Yes. And to say that it, it, it failed to elevate itself to a level of art or to a level of truth is saying something more about me and what I want in a film than about the film and and how entertaining it is. And that may begin to account for the discrepancy between the critical responses in it. I mean, I 
think it had like 77% at Rotten Tomatoes. I think there's a lot to be entertained by. And if anyone goes to this film and likes this film as a Christian or otherwise, I've, I got no beef with you. No. I mean, uh, I want to carve out a place that says for all critics, uh, we should be able to make critical judgments on what the artists, how well they executed that and the artifact that they created and not just on what their motivations were. Well, to put it really bluntly, if, if a movie of this quality and level of technical and you know artistic merit was made about the life of Jesus, you know, I would like to think that there is a place for us to say, yes, there are all these good things about it, but you know what? There are these problems. Right. And, and I think there would be people, and many of them would be Christian, who would say, how can you give that a bad movie when it's about the life of Jesus and it's good intentions and it's entertaining, whether that, you know, movie is Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ right. or, or, or something else. And I would say that when you start doing that, and, I, and I've heard some Christians even do that about 42. Yes. Well, Branch Rickey is a Methodist. That's a positive portrayal of religion, you know, because there's a good character and that good character's goodness is tied to his religion. Therefore, it is a good movie, and I would be like, no, therefore, it is a mediocre movie that has a positive portrayal of a, right. of a Christian. Having a positive portrayal of a Christian and being a good movie are two separate things, but they too often get conflated yes. in Christian criticism. Um, and I think when you throw in the fact that it's not about Branch Rickey, that gets complicated in ways that people don't understand. But I still, there, there is a part of me, even in saying that, that wants to hold out a place for the casual moviegoer Christian who doesn't see a lot of movies, who, if he wants to, or she, wants to like it for that reason, that's okay. But be a, be self-aware that that's why you like it and what you're saying about it, and don't just lump that under general praise of, oh, this is a great movie, or this is a great artistic achievement of, no, this is this is a piece of entertainment that strokes me as a Christian by telling me what I want to hear as a Christian, right. you know, um, or focusing on those elements of a story that are most appealing to me because they reinforce my own. And at the very least, it's not going to offend me in this is a film that does not have sexuality and bad language yes. and, you know, all of those things. Um, and so it's like, hey, I can go to this film and not you know, have those sensibilities offended. Right. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have questions or comments for us about this episode, please visit us at The Thin Place at www.filmgeekradio.com, and you'll see a place to click on Thin Place Episodes. You can also email us at the thin place at filmgeekradio.com. You can follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Morfield, or read my reviews at the number one more filmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.